right. Welcome to Art Fight Podcast number 91. We have a very special guest that you can't see yet. Today is super excited about this one for sure. This is sort of a, 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 a Tennessee native story. So I think that our local people here are really going to appreciate this. And then I'm sure everyone around the world will appreciate it as well. But I really wanted to start this one off in a special way. So Wayne White, welcome. Thank you for being here, man. Thanks for having me. So, Good to talk to you. Yeah, so, so the way I want to start this off here is, you know, I did a little bit of research and I was looking back at Jim Ridley's piece uh, that he wrote about you in 2009. Yeah. And, and I'd seen something somewhere where you, you said that that was your favorite interview that you ever did. It sure is. Right? So Hyperbole. That's in print. That's my fav- one of my favorite pieces, one of my favorite articles for sure. That was the who's he think he is yeah. issue. Yeah. yeah. So so in the spirit of riding the coattails of greatness, which I think is also perhaps a, a narrative here, I'm going to, instead of giving this sort of biographical spiel about you, I'm just going to read some words from the great Jim Ridley to bring everybody into sort of a point of orientation about this. And we can just pick up where that conversation left off and then some. But my favorite part of this was, you know, Jim Ridley was talking about your George Jones you know, massive scale sculpture that was a commission for Rice University Art Gallery in Houston. And, you know, a sort of site-specific thing. And this is what Jim said. And so I just want to read this real quick. I've never read anybody else's writing on this, but this is one where it's worthwhile. He said, and it just can't be said any better. He said, the irony in this is that Wayne White's work, in many ways, is a reaction against the tyranny of the swelled head. He honed, <laughs> he honed his career in a culture snob's idea of the Bush Leagues, cartoons, puppet shows, children's TV. As an artist, he invokes pomp for purely comic effect, outfitting humble items such as thrift store paintings with imposingly grandiose text elements. <laughs> right? The, the guy's... The guy's now the subject of a lavish monograph, the kind of career-capping coffee table brick most artists lust for, and yet its title mocks just that sort of hubris. Maybe Uh, now I'll get the respect I so richly deserve. Oh, so good. So good. And so I I just, I figured we would put you in a good spot by just trying to ride the the coattails of of the late, great Jim Ridley. And, and, And it is a, you know, in terms of Nashville, I mean, I can't think of anything more more quintessential than that. And a lot of a lot of in a, a lot of ways, your story as well. So we'll, we'll get into all those things. But welcome, Joe Nolan. Sorry, I haven't even talked to you yet here. You're, I've just been focusing on. I'm just I'm happy. To, I'm just happy to be riding the coattails of greatness here at the <laughs> podcast. Yeah, man. So, so you know, and there's a lot to get into. We can we can take a lot of turns here, but. One of the things I, I want to make sure I get to before we forget and I get distracted. My favorite sort of narrative that I hear from, I've heard this from a lot of artists and it's certainly been something that I've experienced uh, in my time. You have a constant story of, and sort of a reminder or a lesson to remind people that if you want to do something, go to the source, go to where everyone is is way better than you and suffer through getting better right yeah so mike i guess if i had if i was going to wrap that into a question it's it's like it's clear that you've had this very long progression and and we can get into some of those points of of enlightenment you've had through through your your time but how are you keeping that that spirit alive now right well that's something i didn't purposely engineer in my life i just kind of accidentally found myself in that situation because I thought I was a, I thought I was a hot shot going up there to New York. I thought I was going to be is going to be a level playing ground, but suddenly I <laughs> found myself in dire danger like that, with everybody better than me. So I decided I would play like uh, you know, oh, I meant to do that. You know, it's a piece of wisdom. But I I I turn I I you know I I turned it into a piece of wisdom for myself. And uh, I quickly realized that, yeah, this is the great way to learn. You know, it's do or die. It's a, you're out on a limb. And, you know, it's, ex- it's the ultimate existential situation. And as far as, like, keeping that kind of challenge alive in my life now, that's kind of hard to sustain for very long. It's kind of a young man's game, you know. If I was under the same pressure now, it would kill me. <laughs> 
But I do try to challenge myself, and I do try to keep experimenting and do new things. And I'm married to a genius, Mimi Pond, and she keeps me on my toes. So I try not to be lazy. You know, I try to keep going, especially in these days when lith- lith- lethargic days that we're in. Mm-hmm. I think it's an interesting time. You know, I see lots of artists who partly seem confused as to what to do. Other artists who feel like they don't have anything to say about the times we're in right now. And so they don't, they just don't feel like saying anything. And then other artists who seem to be like really active because, you know, they've become inspired in some way by this whole situation and they've come across lots of opportunities in some other ways than, you know, real life, you know, public exhibitions and whatnot that we normally go through. What are some of the things like, when when you know you just mentioned that that you you know try to find ways to stay engaged and keep growing and keep learning and really at the end of the day like our podcast always really comes back to those kinds of lessons so like what kind of things are you doing to keep you still inspired to keep making new work i we just mentioned before we got on the air that you post you know paintings to your twitter account a lot and i see those all the time and i asked you before we started how many of those were new paintings and you admitted that not all of them are new but about 50 percent of them are new which still means you're doing a lot of work. So, so what what keeps the fire going for you these days? Well, like you know, like Chuck Close once said, inspiration is for amateurs. You know, <laughs> you just it's you get up and you make yourself do it, whether you want to or not. And that's just, that's just the self discipline of being an artist, especially a freelance artist. Yeah, well said. So, yeah, and it's not that much different for Mimi and I. It's it's still our normal routine. We both work at home. So we're working at home as usual. But lately, I've been using puppets to inspire me to have this new vision of puppetry again now that uh, we're stuck at home. And I've been wanting to do homemade puppet shows for a long time. I used that. That's how I started out, you know, in New York and Nashville, actually in Nashville. I did a lot of homemade puppet shows in Nashville. And then I wound up doing Mrs. Kabobble's Caboose there in Nashville, which is is a whole nother story about you know channel eight <laughs> but I've, I've had this and i've always kind of used puppets as a coping device almost not like in therapy you know talk to the puppet and tell it not like that <laughs> but just as a just it's just something that i feel like is my own that i've put my own stamp on that i that nobody around me is doing and I first turned to pup. I always seem to turn to puppets in a crisis. Like when I was in college at MTSU in Murfreesboro, I started doing puppets because I was sick of art school and the and fine art. I wanted something to excite me about art again, so I started doing them, and I got a tremendous response. So I kept doing them, and I did them in Nashville because I was graduated and I was I was 23, 24 years old, lost in the world, not knowing what to do. So I kept doing the puppet shows and it seemed to ground me. And it, and best of all, it got me a lot of attention and, and approval from people. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what young artists constantly need. They need some kind of validation. So I used it for the validation thing. Then I moved to New York and I kept doing them just because it was a big fucking scary place. And the a puppet stage was like a little fort, you know. I even called it Arsenal Puppet Theater. And you could kind of hide in this fort and go to house parties or nightclubs and be over in the corner doing puppet shows. And maybe nobody's that to cope with the chaos of, of New York City. And lo and behold, it led to uh, a professional career in doing them, which I, which I never st- started out to do. I just did them because I... I clung to them as a security thing and as a way to work out just to keep me excited about making art. It just, they just do. I can't explain it. But now, and now in this new crisis, I've again turned to puppets as a, Mm. as I hate to say coping device, but I do seem to turn to them in crisis or, or when I need to define myself. And right now I just felt like it's a new time. It's a new, it's a new world and it's time to redefine and time to reinvent and time to, you know, try something new and experiment. So I'm doing this puppet show on Instagram, the WW puppet show. And I've done two two so far. I'm working on a third one right now. They're they're coming along slowly because it's a one man operation, but I am, 
I'm really having a good time doing them. And um, I'm, I'm, uh, I feel like I'm helping people maybe cope a little bit themselves, you know? Yeah, I think that there's, it's been really interesting for me. I was having a conversation just earlier today with someone about how music has been really strange for me during this time because a lot of the music that you would turn to to just sort of make yourself be at ease or, you know, your sort of standby records or whatever, a lot of stuff just sounds, it has a different, it's a different prism that it's coming through now or something. It's hard to explain. So it maybe feels a little vacuous to, I don't know, just to listen to the Beach Boys or something. It seems, a li- I'm not saying everything needs to be militant and upset or fearful or heavy. It just, certain things come through in this in this time differently. And I'm trying to map that out or try to understand that, that more, but that makes it obviously a, a little bit more confusing to figure out sort of what, what is it that you should be re- responding with or doing or should you even respond or just you just stay the stay the course and just do what you've always done but i, I do appreciate like the the coping term uh, you know i suppose that's better than like happy place right that's a little loaded as well <laughs> <laughs> you but, could say that too there's a million cliches you could say yeah. they're all be true that's the problem with cliches they're true yes <laughs> Well, I mean, that, but, that that's a good segue also into like sort of the nature of your, 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 your paintings in terms of your use of language and words as monoliths and, and all that. It has any of that, I mean, you've, that's a, you've been doing that for a, a good while now, right? So how has that evolved for you and where do you see it going? Is that also sort of like a, this is a comfortable sort of uh, channel that I can sort of always go to. And I feel like this is part of my, my kind of repertoire. If you were a musician, right, it'd be like in your repertoire. Or is it something that you're like, I don't know, like I just do it when I feel like it. Uh, no, I, I keep the pains going on a regular basis because mm-hmm. that's that's part of the Wayne White business, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they, they sell and I don't mind doing them. And I've always got something new to say and something new to try with them. That's a big part of what I do in the studio, but it, uh, back to what you, and, and I will always do the bird paintings. I'll always do them. Mm-hmm. I just, that's, they're associated with me and I don't mind being branded like that. I'll do them because I like it. But back to something earlier was saying about mm-hmm. how should we respond? What should be, you know, that's part of the artist deal is that you just kind of, pay attention and it'll tell you how to respond. I always say like when you're making a piece of art in the studio, it's a collaboration, you know, you're not the dictator. The line or a piece of color, the minute you start a piece of art, it's starting to talk back to you and it's telling you what it wants to do. Uh-huh. And I know that sounds crazy, but every artist believes in that certain kind of voodoo or magic and, and it's true. And it's the same way with life, you know. It's going to tell you. You're not you, the artist has to be in a position to just listen and and uh, respond and collaborate with the world, not just you know. You're you're not alone. You're, you're a collaborator with the world when you're an artist, and mm. it's going to tell you things if you just mm-hmm. kind of learn how to listen to it. Yeah, this is already our most quotable show, by the way, Wayne. So we appreciate your eloquence here. I want to tell you, though, that I think I think I agree with you. And and last episode we did, we were talking with our guest then, a guy who has done some music. We were talking about the idea that, you know, it's it's you're not so much sitting down and like writing a song as much as you're sort of discovering a song that's already there in some way, you know, absolutely. yeah. Right. And so I, I feel like that's that's sort of a theme that that's run through a few of our episodes. And I'm I'm glad to hear it in your words. But that said, you know, at the end of the day, as artists, we have to ultimately bring those things back to the real world. And yeah. I know that with our podcast, we've had, you know, our challenges in terms of, you know, trying to upgrade from being just an audio podcast to being able to have three people on video and all this kind of stuff. Have you had like what was the learning curve like for you from going uh from you know, creating the kind of uh, home puppet shows you used to do from abstract to finding a way to, <laughs> yeah, yeah to, to finding a way to actually make those available through Instagram. <laughs> well, the last time I did home puppet shows was ancient history, way back in the 20th century, really, and I was <laughs> using a big ass old video camera. I'd rent a three quarter video camera or something like that and just set it up you know one shot i'm still basically doing the same thing now because i'm limited i just use my iphone and just 
put it on a tripod, one shot, two shots. I, I, I do the two shot. You know, it's like a puppet. That's ambitious. <laughs> you know, and I, and I, I do it in one take. And I, I'm, eventually I'm going to start editing and doing them longer with close-ups and stuff. But right now the challenge is to just do a minute-long, one-take, two-shot. And the, yeah, and, cool. and the the energy and the tension and the <laughs> uh, just the feel of that is something I'm interested in, not something carefully pieced together post. You know, a live I, performance, and I think that comes through, I think – the energy of that is something people respond to. And plus, it's just the simplest thing for me to do right now. I, I, I want to expand it. But uh, so, you know, I, I'm very, it's very simple. There's no, you know, just anybody could do it. You just set the camera up and go. And you do take after take and you pick the best take. And I keep it under a minute because I want it to be on Instagram and I don't want it to be, you know, extended. Right. So, and I'm a big fan of Ernie Kovacs. I don't know if y'all know who Ernie Kovacs is. You ever heard of him? Mm -mm. He was a team. Y'all, you got to check him out. He was a TV pioneer of the late fifties. He died in a car wreck when he was young in 1961, but he was an early TV Dadaist. And he did these little weird little blackout surrealist sketches on television that were real low tech, but very very ingenious and weird and uh, William Wegman the performance artist the video artist got a lot from him and I, I loved William Wegman's early videos too he's a big influence so it's just this kind of deadpan dada dumb joke kind of thing you know? I, I, I urge everybody to check out Ernie Kovacs there's some Ernie Kovacs stuff on YouTube it's really cool how cool is it that everything is available now to be archived, sourced, seen? Because I mean, I just think about how growing oh, up, yeah. growing up, how how great. hard, yeah, how hard it was just to get any insight, you know, as to what people were doing or how they were doing it. And you know, growing up in the South, right? I mean, you, I grew up in North Carolina. You grew up in Chattanooga, and you know, Joe grew up yeah. in Detroit. But you know, whatever. <laughs> so, but but just the idea yeah. that it, there was this. There was this veil of there was something about being in the South where it was like what was going on in New York or L.A. or in entertainment or in the music industry. Everything felt so separate and like it was just another another dimension that I was just trying to get to, you know, and uh, I I feel like more so. Yeah. Even more so for me. I'm older than you guys. Yes, sir. You know, it was back then it was magazines and album covers. You had to like. To, you know, music really had mystique back then. You, you you would like study these album covers, you know, every little inch of it, and read the liner notes like there was something sensible in a liner note, you know. And the, <laughs> then you go to a magazine store and you'd sit there at the magazines, and that was about it, you know. Yeah, uh, the hunt. The hunt was a participatory act. It was like a, and it was a thing that you and your friends would all team up you know you would be all sort of into the same thing and you're like okay we've got to figure out where the studio in new york is putting out this stuff like what else is going on there if you see anything you know grab it and think about how many like shitty records we bought but we still found value in them because they gave us some insight into another world oh yeah a record cover used to mean everything you know record cover was a portal to another world and to do to be an artist and make a record cover that was like the the golden dream for me when I was a kid, you know, those an album was the most powerful piece of art I knew as a kid. That in comic books, you know, that's that's what art was for me. And I and and I and I think there's there was a certain value when things had more of a mystique. Maybe I don't know. I think it's great now too. I think it's great to be able to to travel the world you know, on a computer and look up stuff and obscure right. things are getting their due, you know, and stuff like that. That's, I'm not going to be the cranky old man, you know, right. I, I don't believe in, I don't believe in the good old days. Right. I don't. Yeah. 
Another great quote. <laughs> so I keep I keep I break it into on these great quotes. I feel like I feel like that's I mean, back to what we talked about earlier about how do you keep motivated? How do you keep doing what you're doing? We you know, uh, you mentioned being older than we are. I'm right on the edge of being 50 this year. So, you know, I've already come up against Dang. the same thing of trying to <laughs> the same thing of trying to be, you know, trying, you know, trying to be motivated and try to stay focused and try to learn and grow, you know, as you go on and on and on and what you're doing creatively. Creatively. And I think, you know, when it comes to, you know, the, the way things used to be versus the way things are now, I, I recently was doing some writing and, and within that I, I started talking about Andy Warhol for a second. And I was like, I think the biggest thing that Andy Warhol did was so he was sort of like one of like the spearhead of breaking down the boundaries between, you know, what we call fine art and what we might call pop art or what we might call folk art, you know, all those divisions that, you know, at the beginning of your career were much more firmly in place. How has that, how has the fact that a lot of those categories have broken down now, how, how has that affected your career over the last 30 years, let's say 40 years? Well, I didn't, I, I didn't, by the time I came along, the idea of pop art and postmodernism and and art being a rigid one thing was kind of was already breaking down a lot. Uh-huh. So there'll always be a high snobby uh, fine art world kind of deal. It's just, it's just the way people with money are going to be. Yeah. <laughs> well said. <laughs> but uh, the can't break it down, and I didn't let it bother me at all. I just I, mostly out of naivete, I just thought of everything. As long as it involves drawing or painting or making something, some kind of image, it's art to me. And I did not debate the issue, and I still don't. You know, it's and believe me, it was not something that I formulated. It was just naivete, and it was just the love of making pictures. You know, I don't even like to call paintings paintings. I like to call them pictures. You know, <laughs> I try to find it. I try to find my own little vocabulary to keep it that to keep it real to me and not feel like I am in an institution, although I am, you know, arts and institute. That's the, that's another thing that's bugging me. Uh, that's not bugging me, but it's, it's sad right now. It's like so many people that had to stay at home are lost, you know, because they are plugged into institutions mm-hmm. and that's the way society is. It's just the way it's going to be. I'm not going to judge them and mm-hmm. how to make money, but people are so, plugged into institutional hierarchies and mm. uh, that's the fucking freedom of the artist you know even though even though uh, free will is an illusion and all that at least we are at least we're representative of some kind of free will or some kind of independence from an institution yeah it's almost like you've really seen a lot of people either kind of fall on the side of either those that are bound to institution or the, 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 the broader constructs that people fall into, they will be very, they find themselves very unmoored right now. Whereas, right. People like maybe me or you or whatever. I'm, I'm like, I was made for the, I've been doing this. And that doesn't mean yeah. that I, that's also a place of privilege. I don't have anybody directly affected in my immediate life. I mean, you know, I try to keep that in check, but ultimately it is this kind of thing where like, this is fairly instinctive. Yeah. 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 I I don't, I don't mean to gloat about it, but I guess I can gloat a little because it was a decision in my life and it's something I've fought for, for 30, 40 years to make a reality. And I, I did create it for myself. So I can be a little proud, proud of that. Yeah. As opposed to being proud of being from the South, which is completely <laughs> meaningless. I hate pe- I hate regional pride of any kind. <laughs> it's like, I just happen to be born here, and it's the greatest place in the world. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, this is the portal through which the universe passed me, and therefore I now lay, lay claim to it retroactively or something. It's very strange. <laughs> Yeah, pride is a is a, is not good, but it, you got to be proud proud about something. And I guess I am proud about the fact that I I come from a, a blue collar lower middle class, but I found my way in the world as an artist. And looking back on it, I see that it was almost impossible to do that. Yet I did it. So mm-hmm. hey, I'm bragging. Yeah. No, that's good. I mean, I think again, you know, a lot of times this show comes down to 
just really focusing on, you know, the, the nuts and bolts of the journey itself. You know what I mean? And, and I feel like, you know, I, I totally understand where you're coming from and saying like, you know, it, it wasn't an accident that you did the things you did. You made, you made choices that were difficult and had to deal with the consequences of those choices. And now, now here you are in the art fight podcast, who would have thought, <laughs> um, but, but I feel like I, but I understand what you're saying. And I do think it is important. And I do think that, you know, artists who are able to, you know, find some kind of success and sustainability for their practice and at the same time stay independent of those institutions. It's really a rare thing to be able to thread that needle. And and I think that's kind of the ideal because just making the work or just making the money or just getting the attention or whatever, that's all maybe a part of it. But I think at the end of the day, something that you're speaking to right now is the idea that being an artist is really about values and about defining a sense of what those values are and then living those values. If you had to boil down like the things that you value, what, what are some of the things that you've, you know, you know, set up as like your guideposts in terms of your practice or, you know, the line you wouldn't cross in your practice, you know, what are the things that have, you know, sort of been the spotlights along the way that have helped you make this journey? That's a tough one to answer because it changes so much as you age. Mm -hmm. At first, I was like, (laughs) at first, it was all about just being naive. You know, I could, I could crow about, you know, I figured it all out early and this is the path. No, I was just a young fool who thought I was the greatest thing in the world. (laughs) And I thought the world is just waiting for me. And here I come world. Why do you see what I got? You know, typical young people's optimism and naivete. And I, I went into the belly of the beast that way, you know, and I was lucky I survived but because of some values that I started that are still alive in me. Number one is drawing and just keeping the craft alive, mm-hmm. you know, keeping that, keeping, keeping, keeping your powder dry, keeping that gun clean and getting ready to step out in the street yet for another gunslinging adventure, you know. Mm-hmm. I've often thought of myself as that way, as a gunslinger. You know, you got to keep on the edge. You know, you got to keep practicing that draw, literally. (laughs) Yeah, that's cool. And so that's one value that hasn't changed for me ever since I was young. I knew I had to keep that craft alive, especially when I got up there to New York City and I was around all those hot shots, man. That's when I really stepped up my game. And then uh, the naivete... And the energy of being young just kind of helped me survive that crazy ocean stream. I always thought of it as a giant turbulent ocean, you know. And for, at first I was clinging to a little log. Mm-hmm. And then I got another log and another <laughs> log. And I made a little raft. And then there was a boat full of some friends. Can I get in your boat? Yeah. So I got in the boat. And then I got in a bigger boat. So my my youth helped me survive. And then, uh, I don't know, I, I got lucky. I got some lucky breaks, Pee Wee's Playhouse. I mean, how many times has that happened to somebody in a lifetime? That right. just that was just like getting uh, to go to Oz. You know, that just changed my life completely. And then, so that vaulted me professionally, and I started making money and stuff. And then I started getting on my toes professionally because I knew I was around a new set of hot shots. I'm a very competitive guy. I, I get that from my upbringing in the 60s in Chattanooga playing sports. Mm. My, my old man's a big jock. He was a coach. And when I was a kid, you either played sports or you were a reject. You were an outcast. Mm-hmm. So I learned a lot of competition from sports. Some people call it zero sum or whatever. I don't know. I learned to be competitive. I think that helped me, too, from an early age. It also limited me, too, because whenever I went into a situation when I was young, whether it was a classroom or uh, waiting in the lobby with other artists, I was always looking around going, OK, who's 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 the best? Who's who, who do I have to beat? You know, <laughs> <laughs> or I go into a classroom. Not, not that I'm here open minded and ready to learn. I look around. OK, who's the best artist in this class? <laughs> you. Okay, you, you know, so I guess that's a certain way to learn, but it's sort of closed me off in a lot of ways, too. And I had to sure. get, get humbled by New York City to learn that I wasn't the best. I wasn't even in the running, you know, 
that humbled me and taught me a big lesson. And then uh, showbiz just kept this competitive thing going, and that's why I survived in Hollywood, you know, because I was competitive. And do you feel like, <laughs> do, you, do you feel like that you know you're sort of constant wrestling with the the swelled head and the the ego and okay. and all this? I mean, it seems it seems like that's a, a pretty well it's like sort of a projection of this embattlement that you've 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 constantly been sort of wrestling with. Maybe that, that's one of the themes of my word paintings: is yeah. ego and vanity and yeah. hubris. And uh, mm-hmm. all is vanity. Really, that sums up the theme of my word paintings. All is vanity, mm-hmm. in a way. I, I, I think that's a great theme. The, the human ego, human vanity. I think it's uh, the, the the root of all evil. I think it's also hilarious. It's the funniest <laughs> thing in the world because it's all, you know, dust. I appreciate too very much that you 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 really have you have a. I believe that objects have power in some way. I don't know how or why, but like old objects, right? Like you talk about these paintings have sat through all these inane conversations and, you know, (laughs) right? Like just 30 years of, you know, bad television reruns or, you know, it's absorbed all of this somehow metaphysically or otherwise. You know, I don't know how how else, like if you believe in the power of objects in this way, you know, like how, how do you reconcile that with, with maybe things that you're creating that are completely new, or do you feel like that that's something that you just sort of choose? You either have that quality about your medium, or or you just sort of don't. Or because I feel like that things that have that quality seem to run naturally, more quickly, more deeply, and have some weird intangible, like I'm plugged into it faster, and I don't know why. Now, what quality are you just? Or I mean, you, like this. Mean? The meaning, like the, the the sort of existing media, right? Like like found object or oh, found objects. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, I you know I totally, and I think a lot of people feel this way. I I, I totally uh, identify with found objects because it's because they show the the ups and downs of life, just like a human face does. You know, I I, I much prefer something kind of worn down and battered. A lot of people like that. You know, it's a certain aesthetic, you know, the, the used worn object with a history. It's we relate to them as humans. And uh, yeah, I, I came across this the whole word painting thing on found thrift store as a, at, a, at a moment's in a moment's whim. That's how this whole thing started. I had a few of them laying around and I just decided to experiment one day. But I was wanting to put giant letters in my already painted landscapes that I was doing, but I decided just one day, as an experiment, I used these thrift store paintings, and later I sort of found out meanings there that I didn't really know of, or maybe some, or like I said, I listened to the whole process and it kind of explained itself to me. The fact that these found thrift store landscapes I use are very, pretty much kind of me in a way. They're they're from the same socioeconomic bracket I was in. I, I they were in my parents' house, all my friends' houses. The dog. I grew up with them. They're part of my American DNA, you know. So they were me, and they were America. They were a lot of people. They were a whole generation of certain people. And so they're this American kind of collective consciousness almost, you know. And so that, that I, like, I liked that. They were non-pretentious. They weren't of the art world, but they were pictures. And I liked, you know, I just liked, they were kind of a place to escape to almost away from the pretensions of the art world. I've, I've often thought of Mary Poppins when they jump into the chalk drawings, you know, Bert draws the chalk drawings and the kids jump into them. (laughs) Oh God. I love that. Yeah. (laughs) I love that movie so much. And it really sent me. And I often think of that when you're making a picture of, of those kids jumping into those pictures like that. And that's something I kind of want to do. You know, I think that's, I also wanted to jump into the Viewmaster when I looked at it as a kid. Mm, and I think awesome. that's something that all artists share. They glimpsed a world that they want to be a part of, but they can't quite get there. So they spend their whole life trying to make it around them somehow. You know, mm-hmm. that's what going into these thrift store paintings are like. That's what, making these giant installations are like for me. I'm making this Viewmaster Mary Poppins world that I wanted to live in as a kid, you know? So 
Yeah, I love that. And by the way, this has nothing to do with anything, but uh, I saw on the uh, on Twitter yesterday, there was a, a house posting, some house in Maryland, this crazy sort of McMansion house. And whoever these people were, were wildly eccentric, but they had an entire basement that was built to look like a, a, a town square inside, you know, a subterranean, but with storefronts and and just the whole thing. And, and I, as I was sort of thinking about, you know, we were coming up on talking to you and I was like, there is some, there is some weird, like, I don't know, a drive for, for wonder that, that people, if they have the means, they are going to make it happen, you know? And this was, <laughs> so, but by the way, you mentioned Mary Poppins and that's what made me think about it because they had, they had a theater in their basement, at least the exterior, what seems to be a theater. And on the marquee, it had, it was a double, it's a double feature, Mary Poppins. <laughs> it's a double feature, Mary Poppins, The Exorcist. And my wife and I were like, that's actually, that sounds like a great movie if it were just one movie. <laughs> yeah. I, it's a very human uh, drive to create your own little world. It is. It's nothing new to me. Every, people have been doing it since we could scratch on the wall, you know? Yeah. And it, it, it's, it's driven a lot of artists to create incredible wonderlands you know uh, the, all the great folk artist gardens and stuff like that and, yeah. and showbiz is the same is the same way making a set you know i've always wanted the art to come alive somehow you know that's why i like puppets because it's like a little guy that i can make that comes alive and i did animation for a while i really got into animation seriously through beekman's world and then i did some rock videos with it and uh, disney channel stuff I did it all on my own on a computer, and I just loved it so much. And it finally, I, I talk about this in the documentary, it drove me insane. I had a fucking breakdown over there because I just <laughs> couldn't stop doing it. I would draw something, and I would just be like, it was like heroin. I just <laughs> had to sit there for six more hours straight and make this little guy come alive and make it look convincing. And the minute he started walking and talking, it's like, oh, then it's six more hours to make him do something else. Before <laughs> you know it, you know, I was like, I was, a, <laughs> I was a mess. So I love animation too. I'd love to go back to it. Man, that sounds like, uh, it's, it sounds to me from the outside, people that are not animators, it seems so torturous, right? It seems, it is. It's it's incredible amount of work. Yeah. But I was driven. Yeah. I I've never been actually. I've never been driven as much as that. I just. It was just so magic, you know. So, I I imagine in your time in your sort of progression, especially younger days in New York, making your way, all of that. I I know you were a short order cook. I I read about that. I'm sure that that informed your work, and I I can't imagine. That, I can't imagine somebody as sort of natively in real world, creatively uh, inspiring as you. I can't imagine what you were doing at the Empire, but I'm sure it was it was badass. I'm sure it was not your regular sunny side up. I'm sure there was some 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 creation. No, no I didn't get. You couldn't get creative, you know, with the customers. <laughs> what's in you. Yeah. I was at. I started out at the IHOP in in Chattanooga as a short order and in high school, and then I did it for almost. Over a little over a year in New York, short order cooking is a real, you know, it's a real thing, you know, mm. and I, I, I could handle any kind of rush and, and stuff. It did kind of influence my work in a way. It helps you. Well, first of all, it's like anything with this. <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't want to do this the rest of my fucking life, so I better get on the stick with the art. <laughs> but other than that, this is just the rhythm and the dance of it and the and the organization of it and uh, the, system, the systematic thing of it. And uh, flow state. And, and being proud of your skills of being able to flip these eggs and keep everything pretty. And I, would, I took a lot of pride in my work. You know, I always plated it perfectly and I was very prideful of my work, even though I hated it. Yeah, I, I don't know. There's a. I recently read this thing about William Burroughs where one of his one of his concepts was was do easy, D E, mm. where everything live your life with precision and grace and jujitsu kind of take the energy from something and transfer it. But do everything with precision, you know, put the pencil down just so when you're making coffee in the morning, do your steps just so. Don't stumble around and drop and break. So that's that 
short ordering, it reminded me of short ordering was very de, do easy, mm-hmm. keep everything down to the most elegant pattern, get your shit together, don't know extra moves, you know. Yeah, it's, it's the attack, and and that's the way a drawing or painting is, and that's it's it's, it's important to have the attack, mm-hmm. attack. It should show confidence, and it should show elegance, and there shouldn't be anything that shouldn't be there. Mm-hmm. So it's all kind of tied together in a way. Yeah, that's interesting. I love I love the idea of the attack, and of course, you know, on the on the art fight ah art fight podcast, we talk a lot to fighters and martial arts coaches and things like that. There's an I'll tell you there's another anecdote about Burroughs that maybe I'll sneak in later, but I wanted to go back one step and go to you talking about you know learning your competitive ways from doing sports as a kid. Did you ever wrestle or box or do martial <laughs> arts or anything like that? No, no, no. I was too wimpy for that. I was a baseball. I, I played sports in the neighborhood growing mm-hmm. up, and then I was organized sports. I played baseball. Oh, right on. What was it, what position were you? Well, I started out at first base. I had the first base mitt and everything. I'd do the uh-huh. stretch and all that oh, stuff. Oh, right on. <laughs> and I was in the, our league was called Dixie Youth. Dixie Youth. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like an indoctrination. Yeah. Well, so we had the battle flag right there on the <laughs> thing. And, uh, my 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 daddy was a coach. He was never my coach. Uh-huh. But I, I was a, I was a good fielder. I could I could field. My way my downfall hitting. Mm-hmm. I could not hit. Couldn't hit. Worth a shit. And so that was my Achilles heel with the baseball. Yeah. It's important to be but, able to hit, yeah. Yeah, the problem with <laughs> my hitting was it's like I was knocked out more than once with throwing balls, mm. hitting the oh, shit. Yeah. So yeah. every time I'd get up to bat, I was more—I was getting ready to dodge the ball rather than right. to hit it. You know. Yeah, I was kind of the same way. I was—I was, I was a, a good fielder, and I really enjoyed fielding. But once we got into like you know the upper level of fastball, you know, middle school age kind of stuff, then it's just got the batting part got harder and harder. And I was from you know like probably much like you, this working class family where, you know, my parents always like, you know, emphasize like doing your best at things and, you know, gee, would get these, get a good grade and all this kind of stuff. So it was one of the first things in my life that I came up against and yeah. uh, where it was like really hard for me. And I ultimately got a better, I had a coach who really helped me with this trick where he gave me these tiny little uh, wiffle golf balls and a shovel handle. And he's like, if you can hit this ball with this stick, you'll be able to hit anything. And, and I got my batting back together doing that. But as what? soon as I had shown and proved to myself that I could learn how to do this. I also was like, you know what? I don't even want to do this. This is, I don't (laughs) want to, this is, this is too much work for something I'm not even really enjoying. And I I moved off into other things, but I I learned a lot from sports, you know, because of those kinds of lessons that you're talking about. And I think, I think there's a, there's, you know, there's a whole lot about, you know, a lot of the themes in the Art Fight podcast are we talk a lot about how, you know, creativity comes into these activities like martial arts and combat sports. Yeah. But that that fighting spirit also speaks to the arts. Sports and arts are totally close together. I mean, the Olympics are supposed to be a celebration of both, but the TV never shows it, you know. Ah, well, it's, a, again. it's about art, too. And, and they're very close. Art, music, and sports are kissing cousins, totally. And I did learn from sports, and it was a very big trauma for me, though, because it was the first thing I really failed at. And I, it was very, and I didn't even get to the middle school with it. I, I, I dropped out in sixth grade with it, mm-hmm. and it was like traumatic as hell for me because I felt like a loser, and I had horrible coaches. My father's, <laughs> my father's a good man, but he's completely withholding completely shut down emotionally and he couldn't help me and he was embarrassed that I wasn't good and all this crap and it was like this source of shame and trauma you know that's Mm -hmm. stupid I was a fucking 12 year old boy and I'm full of shame because I can't hit a ball (laughs) it's ridiculous and and none of the adults around me wanted to deal with why didn't why didn't you just try harder that's what I don't understand (laughs) why didn't you just try harder it took me a whole year to get over it, the <laughs> fact that I wasn't going to be an athlete. And oh, then yeah. about 14 years old, I snapped out of it. And uh, I think yeah. sp- I think sports, I don't know, in certain ways now, it seems like kids are up against a whole new level of pressure that I, I can't really understand. It was different, I think, when, at least when I was a kid in, growing up in, say, the 70s, playing soccer and, and whatever. 
it was just it was kind of brutal in the sense that like I, I have I was asthmatic. I'm running around with my shoulders up like this. I can't breathe, but I'm still somehow like trying to outrun everybody. And then I remember there was one game when I was probably seven where I, I don't know what happened. I remember approaching somebody defensively and then I don't remember anything else. And then I woke up and I was on the, on the field. But I, I, what happened was I tripped and fell. And as he was going to launch the ball down the field, my head replaced perfectly the ball. And then he just sort of shoelaces up just, launched on my oh. head and knocked oh. knocked me out cold right and here i am yeah. i was probably eight or nine years old maybe and the thing what that i remember most about it is i remember waking up and back then it was always those three words walk it off right yeah. walk it off and so rub I, some dirt on it yeah so i remember like <laughs> going over to the sideline after fully being unconscious concussion clearly head injury whatever and then playing in the second half yeah sure because that was that was yeah, how it was i was knocked out at least three or four times when I was, <laughs> yeah and really and i haven't been since i've not been locked unconscious <laughs> as from 12 years old on you know yeah <laughs> and, but yeah you know i was i'm I, I was i was bitter about it as a teenager but i gotten over that yeah it was, it was good you know and my father was quite the athlete and he was you know he was not happy that I was not an athlete. So one of the things I want to get to also is I, my, one of my favorite things with people that are, you know, obviously accomplished and have been able to figure it out somehow, failing forward, tripping, falling forward, whatever you want to call it, right? People have done it. I, I love, everybody's got a story that's just sort of like their, their oh shit moment, right? Like the, the not just epic fail kind of moment, but just it's always made of a particular type of humiliation that I, I love, I enjoy it, right? So I just didn't know if you had anything where it comes to mind where you're like, you know what, like, you know, I had this one thing where I thought I was hot shit or, you know, here, where did something go horribly wrong where it, where it was the most painful for you emotionally? I would love to talk about it. <laughs> well, there's all kinds of horrible, embarrassing things. I'm a human, you know? I was talking to somebody else the other day, and it says, how many horror stories start with, and then in front of the whole class? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I I did go to Edward Smith's sleepover in the sixth grade, and Edward Smith was the coolest guy in the class. He was like, he wore Nehru jackets, for God's sake. <laughs> he also went on to play for the Detroit Lions, you know. Oh, wow. Yeah. He was a linebacker. And so every guy in the sixth grade wanted to be invited to this sleepover party. And so I was afraid to go upstairs and pee because his, the bathroom was right next door to his parents' bedroom. And I didn't want them to hear me pee. So I was holding <laughs> it in. And all of a sudden, they turned the lights off and everybody started wrestling. And I peed all over the floor. <laughs> on Edward Smith's floor. <laughs> and the lights came back up, on, up. And I was not invited to Edward Smith's house ever again. I don't oh, know why I, I haven't even thought of that in years. <laughs> that's what we're here for. I, that's probably not what you were looking for. <laughs> I mean, hey. I, I, yeah, I mean, everybody's, you know, everybody's got a, that's life. That's life. It really is. So, and it's, what else are you terrible at? <laughs> I'm terrible at football. Uh, basketball, mm. I, I archery. I tried archery in college. Terrible. Jeez, can't cook very well. <laughs> hey, you mentioned that you know that there was this pressure from your family regarding sports and stuff. But once you started, once you you know got past that and and started making these choices to be the creative person that you actually clearly are, how supportive were they? I know for lots of artists like their parents and their friends like not accepting what they're doing or accepting what they're doing can make all the difference early on, especially. Well, my parents were as supportive as they could be. My parents are both a country boy and a country girl from Sand Mountain, Alabama. Mm -hmm. And they, had they didn't know about art or anything, although my mother was sort of interested in art. But they had no idea what a, who an artist was, what the artist's path was going to be, or Mm -hmm. But they were proud of me that I had talent. I mean, I was always the kid who could draw all through school. I made yeah. sure that, you know, I was made sure I was the champion drawer. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody knew I could draw. And, and my daddy would 
be proud of me when I would draw at the bowling alley and draw pictures of his buddies and all that. So I was the kid who could draw. And they were they could saw I had real talent. And so they did not poo-poo it. They didn't support it either. You know, they didn't try to mentor me or try to put me in touch with people because there wasn't any. Right. It was nothing. It was Chattanooga, Tennessee in the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. So they they supported me in the best way they knew how, but laissez-faire. You know, they mm-hmm. let me just do it. They didn't just say, Wayne, you know, you shouldn't be thinking of being an artist. They they knew I was going to be one. Mm-hmm. They were they were bewildered and a little uh, scared and uh, a bit threatened, you know, because who is this creature we made, you know, <laughs> has all these aspirations. In fact, one one time my mother, I was down in Atlanta working for uh, Cartoon Network back in the early 90s. And they they came down to see me and I showed them all these set drawings I was doing for the show. And my mother was just like, oh, oh. I go, what's wrong, Mama? She goes, Wayne, this scares me. This, this scares me what you do. I, it's it's too good. What a you scare me. Yeah. Oh, Jesus Christ. And that was kind of a, a moment for me. I understood like they don't want to, they, they, they love me, but they can't deal with what I'd become. My, <laughs> Billy can't deal with it. He cannot deal with it. Whenever I start showing him stuff I've done, he, he gets this look like, take it away. <laughs> take it away. I, don't, I don't know what to do or say about it. <sighs> You know, it's weird. They, they're threatened by this alien I've become mm-hmm. from you know this this little southern boy, factory worker boy, you know, to Mister Hotshot New York artist. They don't know what that means or is. Yeah, he's he's kind of he's kind of fruity, but he's got something going yeah. for him. Yeah, like yeah, my mom is always doing that. The whole time I was in New York, I'd come home and she'd take me aside. She goes, "Wait." You're, you're sounding like a Yankee. <laughs> I'd, I'd be like, uh, the shame. Uh, yeah, I always had the problem of growing up in the South, people people said, you know, you don't sound like you're from here. And then I moved to New York and people are like, you don't sound like you're from here. You know, I, I, I just never, I've never been able to sound like it. I'm wherever I'm from. So now I just sit in Nashville in the Midwest and just say, well, I'm just a tourist, you know, but uh, for the last 20 years. But speaking of Nashville real quick, I wanted to, there's uh, a question here about, uh, curious about Wayne's connection to Kurt Wagner, the band Lamb Chop, of course, and your history, you know, obviously the album covers. What does, what does Wayne think of Lamb Chop? I mean, geez, that's going to put you on the spot. I mean, of course, it's it's genius. I mean, and Kurt's a genius. But... I love Lamb Chop. You kidding? Yeah. They're, I I was I've been a fan of Lamb Chop ever since they were called Poster Child, <laughs> and I've followed. I I know I met Kurt in 1980 when I moved to Nashville after I graduated from MTSU, and I've, I've seen him go through all kinds of changes and stuff and working at the flooring business and i was thinking oh man and then he started this band up and the other guys at the flooring business were all like oh yeah kurt's got a band yeah right you know it's yeah. 37 years old it's kind of late you know <laughs> then bam you know he hit it with lamb chop and i was so happy for him and of course my buddy tony crow's in the band too and mm-hmm. a bunch of other guys and i was so happy for him that he hit it and got with merge and by that time i'd already had my success so i was I wasn't threatened like all his Nashville buddies were. And I was happy for him because I was, you know, I had my thing and now he got his. And then he then he gave me my dream come true of being an album cover artist with Nixon. And that was probably the first big exposure of my word paintings. Yeah. You know, it's a fucking poster all over London, England, you know. Yeah. So I love Lamb Chop and I love seeing them grow and and become the entity that they are. And, and Kurt's a great painter and artist himself. And he's what he's one of my best friends and always, you know, he's one, he's my Nashville connection. And, uh, I think it's, it's such a classic Nashville thing in the sense that that, that band here can play, you know, the VFW. I mean, I live on the West side of town, right? The, the Charlotte Avenue VFW was like the spot you can go see Lamb Chop play down at the VFW. You're right. If you're walking into like a, an old movie, it's the coolest place to see a show. Yeah. 
And then meanwhile, when Lamb Chop goes overseas, they'll they'll play to, you know, massive uh, massive crowds, you know, like yeah. rabid, massive crowds. And then yeah. it's, I don't know what it is about Nashville, even with people that are, you know, even more say, quote unquote, mainstream, there's just some weird deadpan, we've already seen it all <laughs> Nashville thing, right? But I love that you sort of kind of escaped it, but also embodied what the Nashville story is at the same time. Yeah, Kurt, he, he's been an inspiration to me and I hope I've helped him along in his, with, you know, my example but kurt as an example is of a growing and changing artist is important to me as a friend and i in music itself you know and tony crow also that lives there in nashville is a great pianist music is like i said earlier music and art are hold hands and i am a crappy amateur musician myself i would play banjo and cigar box guitar and i torture people with it on instagram yes 60 <laughs> and, uh, seconds at a time <laughs> i i play music every day i play strings every day and it helps me think and relax and i, I love doing my silly little numbers so music is you know every it, i think all artists would agree music is right there this it's sort of the same thing definitely and so Speaking of, you have a video. There's, there's, so there's a group outfit called Waltzer out of Chicago, right? Nice. And so I was checking them out. Uh, it's very cool. You know, it's sort of a, I wouldn't say it's uh, similar to Lamb Chop necessarily, but it is something in the, the there's an underlying, underlying spirit to it and sort of this kind of half in country, Western, half in something a little different. I, I found it to be remotely in the same category, right? But anyway, I'm just curious about the video that's coming out for them and, and what's happening there. Yeah, that a guy named Dan Mystic texted me out of the blue and said, you know, I'm, I'm representing this band, Walter in Chicago, and we don't have any money, but, you know, we got a little, and would you be wanting to do a little video for us? And I was, he just caught me at the right time, you know. It was just perfect because I had my little puppet studio up and running in my painting studio and I was making all kinds of little doodads and plus my daughter in, in uh, Lulu White and she's in Queens she she's a great artist too she graduated from Cooper Union a couple of years ago awesome. she's a sculptor she's a sculptor and a painter and she loves building stuff like I do and so I got her I thought well this would be a great chance for me and Lou to work together and give her a little job so we made uh, she made these little house puppets that I created that I've designed and been working with over the years and I did some backdrops and this and that and a little shoestring do-it-yourself homemade production and uh, like i said it's not something i would normally do but it was just kind of the right place the right time kind of thing and i, I love the do it yourself spirit and I, i'm definitely in the do it yourself at home production mode so i thought yeah, i'll slip this in and uh, i love i like the sound of the band and the song eugene and uh, so we did it how about that man so joe yeah <laughs> i have a question for you Yes, fire away. When was the last time you went to The Great Escape? I was at The Great Escape in West Nashville, which is the only one left here in here in uh, Nashville now. I was at The Great Escape in West Nashville, I think probably last late fall. I have a friend who won a contest designing a shirt for them that actually looks like the old building in Midtown, and I ran in there to check in and see if I could get a shirt, but they didn't actually have them available yet. That was the last time I was there. Actually, there's another great escape in Madison, right up here by me. Oh, there's more than one. Yeah, and I think there's one, in, or at least there used to be one in Bowling Green, I think, but I don't know if it's there anymore. Yeah, I just I love Wayne that 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 is the yeah that's such a a, a power spot for sort of the 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 sharp turn that you you know the moment yeah. of your 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 realization yeah i wandered in there in 1981 when i was living in nashville for a year i was working at the cumberland museum and science center up there on the hill you know the mm -hmm. discovery oh, yeah. center i don't know what it's called now but that was a really good job actually that's where i first started doing the exhibit design which evolved in the set design and I used to, they had the greatest dumpster in the world too. So I dumpster dive and build oh, yeah. my own up stages there. And I, I, that was great. a great first art job for me right out of school. And it sustained me in Nashville for a whole year. 
and it also got me interested in graphic arts and commercial art as as a way to make a living, you know, because I was not going to drive a truck, I, you know. I had to do something, and that's when I transitioned into illustration and cartooning because thinking about commercial art there at the museum, and I wandered into The Great Escape thinking that, and I, I, that's where I first saw Raw Magazine that was being done by Art Spiegelman, and it was just the perfect blend of this abstract expressionist painting style and comic book storytelling, both mm -hmm. things I was totally interested in. I used to be a cartoonist when I was in junior high, and I've always wanted to be one, sort of. And this expressionistic style they're using totally jived with what I was doing at the time and what I'd just spent four years at MTSU doing. So it's just this perfect synthesis of these interests of mine. It just blew my mind. And, I, I, and then I found the Comics Journal, and I looked up Art Spiegelman and the interview, and I found out he lived in New York. He taught at SVA, and so that's that that inspired me to go up there and stalk Art Spiegelman in SVA and get it in on his class <laughs> and get it on the raw scene, and that's how I met Gary Panner, mm. which led and which led to you know Pee Wee's Playhouse, and that's where I met all these other artists, and that which led to meeting my wife Mimi. So The Great Escape was my portal into this whole new world of cartooning that I, I decided I was going to be. That, I, that that moment with Raw Magazine really, like like a in, like a typical twenty two year old, I was like, oh, this is what I'm going to do for life. Yeah, fuck paintings, <laughs> like paintings for rich snobs. <laughs> I'm a man of the people, and cartooning is a, art for the people. And I'm going to be a cartoonist, and I'm going to do it in New York City. And then they had also they had incredible back archives of all the underground comics from the 60s and 70s, Arcade wow. Magazine, Bill Griffith stuff, all that stuff, and the old fat, old classic stuff like Dick Tracy. And I just I just jumped feet first into the cartooning. I would go there every day, and I just I I met Shel Silverstein in there one day, and we had a conversation <laughs> about Harvey, Harvey um, Kurtzman and Mad Magazine. And oh, it looks like you... Did we lose you? Uh-oh. Joe, you're uh -oh. still there, right? I'm still here, yeah. Okay, we got... Oh, we're, just, we're just one hour in. Right, we'll just hang out for a second. Yeah, I mean, Great Escape is such a power spot. Yeah, no doubt. No, I, I, you know, sitting here talking about it, it reminded me of my golden age at the at the Great Escape was the last time I had a car with a cassette player in it, and I would go there all the time and just like buy four or five cassettes for like two or three dollars a piece because this was obviously well in. This is sort of probably still the comeback of vinyl at that point. We'd already been through CDs and I was just listening to all these tapes and then as I would go through them, I'd just bring them back and resell them and then get more three dollar tapes and I would just listen to so much great music because it was so cheap and it was fun to listen to this stuff on, on cassettes too. So yeah, it looks like, looks like we lost Wayne entirely. But you know what? What's cool is that that's the first time that that's happened. So uh, we can take solace in that. Yeah. Is what's, there what's, any? What's the emergency? You, we don't have like an emergency procedure thing, right? Like I don't have right. like some. Like I was just watching. We just watched uh, Chernobyl, and I was, you know, <laughs> like where's the where's the? Can you can you call him back at that uh, Skype address? Let me see here. I'm not sure which we had two of them for Wayne. I'm not sure which one he was using, but uh, so far I hope if anybody's like been tuning in live and listening to this live, I, I hope you guys have been enjoying this chat. This has been really informative and, and uh, you know, like Wayne to me is somebody who, you know, even, even more than I realized he's really embodied like sort of so much of what we end up talking about here on the podcast in terms of how to be sustainable in your creativity, how to learn lessons from other things like sports. And, and I love the fact that he's had the same insight, you know, that we had to start this whole podcast in the first place, which was the fact that there is all this overlap between, you know, the competitive and creative environment of sports and the also creative and competitive environment that you find in, in the arts. He mentioned music as well. So I, I think it's, you know, this, this, this episode has been full of lessons for me. And, <laughs> uh, and again, it's been highly quotable. I, I keep imagining you doing your short edits later and you've got, you've got your work cut out for you. Cause this, there's a ton of them in this show. Mm. <clears throat> well, what? Oh, look at hey. that. Hey, look, we hey. got you back. <laughs> I'm back. Far out. We got you back. Perfect. Oh. 
That is yeah, the that's it, the first time that somebody's just jumped on us, right? And just was like, <laughs> "We're I'm out." It's, it's also you, 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 you dove right into the painting, Wayne, and we didn't know where you were for a minute. <laughs> it's, it's I awful. had enough. Yeah, right. <laughs> Thank you. Honesty. That's all we want here. We just want the truth. <laughs> no, but it is about time to get out of here. So at least you you got back in here, so we can just send you off right but i wanted to give you a proper send-off and just tell you how much i really deeply appreciate your your work and your time and and for for sharing everything that you did with us today it it means a lot man it always does when when people take time and i really appreciate it i know you're in cozy la and everything's perfect and you know all that so i just know i appreciate it well thanks for inviting me it's fun to talk this out talk these things out sometimes it helps you kind of get it clear in my own mind sometimes yeah, right on. Well, we, again, Wayne, uh, for me too, I really appreciate you doing this with us. And one of the reasons why we're glad we got you back before we you know, hung up the show entirely is because we always want to give people a chance to, to let people know where to find them. So if some people aren't already fi- following you on Twitter and Instagram and all that stuff, what's the best places for them to learn more about Wayne White? Well, my Instagram is probably the best place, and that's Wayne White Art on Instagram. And I'm not much of Twitter guy, but that's Wayne White Art too. It's all of them. And there's WayneWhiteArt.com, my brand new website that I urge everybody to see. I just finished it last week and it's vastly new and improved and it's got like 40 years of work on it. So that's a pretty cool thing. And uh, when will we be able to see the the video that we mentioned that you just completed? You know what? I think that's going to premiere, geez, maybe it premieres today. I, I, I'm sorry I don't have all the info on that. It, it's, well, actually, it's Walter's new video. Mm-hmm. And you could It'll Walt's. be on Twitch. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we will we'll, we'll make sure to find a link for it. And if people are, you know, if you, anybody who's listening to the show, we'll, we'll be sure to post some kind of a link for it so people will be able to see it through us and, and, or, and or following you. I'm sure they'll be able to find it as well. Okay, thanks. Sorry I didn't have the That's right, okay. That's fine. Stuff. <laughs> is there anything else uh, that you feel like you want to uh, share or get off your chest before we shut this whole thing down? <laughs> <laughs> well, I just want to say hey to all my buddies in Nashville. Uh, I love Nashville. And uh, hey out there, everybody. Hope y'all are doing good. Well done. Well, Wayne White, really appreciate it. We're going to shut this thing down, but hang on the line here for a minute. We'll do a little post wrap so we can take at least a couple more minutes of your time. But, uh, but really, again, appreciate it. And thanks, everybody, for watching and, and uh, the questions and, and all the enthusiasm. So, so Wayne and everybody, thanks a lot. And we're out. Bye. Okay, guys, I love the Art Fight podcast, and I listen to every episode even though I am a robot trying to sound like an actual person. I know it takes a lot to keep the podcast going. How can I help? Go to anchor.fm forward slash Art Fight Podcast. Click on the button, the big old button that says support this podcast. And once you get there, you'll have three options. You can just choose the lowest level. You're going to pledge 99 cents a month to, to our production and and help us out again anchor.fm forward slash art fight podcast click on support this podcast all right thanks everyone